Well, as some of you know, this last Pentecost at St. Peter's in Sheridan, we released a white pigeon or a white dove up into the air, of course, symbolizing the coming of God's Spirit among us. And I learned it actually isn't easy to find white doves and pigeons in Wyoming. Thanks to Joel's ingenious help, we found one. I was reminded of an experience I had when I was 10 years old in Senegal, West Africa. I used to raise pigeons. I had hundreds of pigeons, all different kinds, including homing pigeons. And a friend of my parents came from the neighboring country of Mali, and I encouraged him to take one of these homing pigeons with him back. And so he did. He put it in a little cage, and he traveled some 1,500 miles back to Mali. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited months. Eventually, this particular friend of my family's came back, and I asked him what happened. And he said it was really interesting. He opened the little cage, and that pigeon went up into the air, circled around once, twice, three times, and then took off in the complete opposite direction. <laughs> It had no idea where to go. And I only learned later that homing pigeons need to be trained. You take them one mile, then two, and then five, and then ten. They do come home, but they come home after over-familiar territory. In short, it had no vision. And it's fascinating <clears throat> to see how much the Scriptures emphasize the importance of vision. During the last several months since I've been here, I have been slowly, very slowly reading through the book of Acts. And vision, of course, is at the heart of how it all begins at Pentecost. The background, of course, is that God's Spirit comes among the disciples, which results in all these strange types of manifestations and confuse some that we're looking on. And Peter stands up to explain what's happening. And the first thing he does, and the first thing he says, is actually a quote from the Hebrew book of Joel. Then Peter stood up and said, let me explain this to you. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young people will see visions, and your old will dream dreams. And he's telling them that God's Spirit is now poured out on all, irrespective of gender and of age or position or ethnicity. And not just like the prophets and the priests and the kings and the seers of the Hebrew Bible. But now, rather, all can be seers. What an excellent term, a seer which was, of course, used for the ancient prophets, that all can have dreams and visions for God's purposes and pursue God's vision for them. Jesus, following the resurrection, gave his disciples this great vision, telling them to go to the ends of the earth. And that vision that he gave them transformed them. They began envisaging Christ's kingdom or Christ's way of living and being put into practice all over the world. 
vision explained their activities, all of them, just after Pentecost. And it explains all that happened in the book of Acts, with the disciples going all over the known world at that time, all the way to Mauritania in West Africa, the way to India in the east, sharing about how Jesus' life and teaching had transformed them and could transform and give life to all. Indeed, a key characteristic of the post-Pentecost era, our time, is that young and old alike will see visions and dream dreams for God's purposes, that God gives us all vision. So exactly what is vision? Well, it's obviously an act of seeing, a certain perception of things, And in this sense, it's somewhat elusive of a concept. It can sometimes be a little mystical. Our first reading that was read to us there a few moments ago is about an experience that Elisha the prophet had, which sheds great light on all of this. And the context here is that Israel and the Arameans are at war. There were really more border clashes. And Elisha had seemingly had some kind of spiritual insight into the enemy's plans, and he informs his king, the king of Israel. For those of you who are history buffs, the king of Aram that is spoken of is Ben-Hadad II, and the king of Israel was King Joram. Obviously, the king of Aram's furious and set out to capture Elisha, and Elisha's assistant asked him, what shall we do? And this ancient story is about how Elisha helps his assistant see, really, the invisible presence of God. The whole story is about vision. It's about seeing. Elisha sees. He's aware of the king of Aram's plans against them. Elisha prays three times. And all the prayers have to do with sight and vision. He prays that his assistant's eyes may be opened. And then that the Aramaean's eyes would be blinded. And then that the Aramaean's eyes would be opened again. And the whole premise of the story is that Elisha had something like a second sight. He saw things others didn't see. And I think that's the best way to describe vision. In photographic terminology, it's like taking the lens cap off. Knowing how to see. Jonathan Swift, who most of us know for Gulliver's Travels, in his Thoughts on Various Subjects, it's this fascinating collection of essays, says, vision is the art of seeing things invisible. And that's why I think the Hebrew term for a prophet, a seer, is so powerful and rich in its connotation. One of my favorite uh, poets is William Blake, the 17th century English poet and artist. And he was known for seeing things others didn't see. And he closes one of his many poems on vision with these words. He ever must believe a lie who sees with and not through the eye. Seeing through the eye, through the surface of reality. 
And that's why Jesus in his teachings over and over again says, this is for those of you who have eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm reminded of the 15th and 16th century Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci, who is, of course, known for his powerful painting and portrayal of the Last Supper. But all of his varied accomplishments, his paintings, his inventions, his discoveries, can be summed up with the Latin word saper vedere, meaning knowing how to see. Open your eyes, Leonardo tells us. You have only to see things properly to understand. And in this sense, he wrote of himself as becoming almost like a mirror to the world. And I love the way the Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud once described da Vinci as a man who wakes too early while it's still dark. Sounds like today, doesn't it? <laughs> while it's still dark and all around are still sleeping. Vision is seeing things others don't see. It's like having binocular eyes, having a depth of perspective and perception. And looking at this incident in Elisha's life, we see some characteristics of spiritual vision. Elisha was very grounded in reality. No one ever gets the sense when you read through the story of Elisha that he's kind of out of touch with this world, that he's above all that's really going on. Hence, he's not someone that we often put high up on a pedestal. At first, we see Elisha here helping his king by giving him the Aramaean's plans. It's a very tangible, practical act of assistance. And then when they come to capture him and he's surrounded by their army and he wakes up, his assistant says, don't be afraid. Speaks of so much. Mountains of feelings here. He's not some superhuman spiritual figure. And then he calmly says to his assistant that those who are with them are more than those who are coming to capture them. In other words, he saw the unseen reality in the forces of heaven and saw their strength in comparison with the visible reality of the Aramean forces. And vision focuses us in on reality and describes reality in a new light. There were two armies there that day. One was small and visible to all. And one was big that only some could see. Vision is a matter of insight. Vision is never about maintaining the status quo. Vision is about stretching reality to extend beyond the existing situation. And vision begins with a dissatisfaction over the status quo and grows into this earnest quest for God's, God's alternative. It's a deep discontent with what is and a clear grasp of what could be. It entails a great depth of understanding. It's a notion of what could occur and is deeply rooted in reality. It reflects a realistic perspective, not dreaming the impossible dream, but dreaming the most possible dream. And that's why visionaries... People of vision are so often fighting conventional wisdom because they see the world ahead in terms of what it can be if someone is willing to look at things in very different ways. Those with vision reframe the way we describe our reality. 
Elisha did this to his assistant. He opened his eyes, and that expanded and deepened his sight. But he went further than this. As they came to capture him, he prayed that they would be temporarily blinded. And not knowing it was him, he led them from the village of Dothan, nine and a half miles to Samaria, the fortress-like capital city on the northern kingdom of the Israelites. And then he prayed that their eyes would be opened. And they realized they were trapped. They were surrounded. And then he went further than this. Instead of having them killed, he adopted an approach which went against all the conventions of his day. He had them watered and fed. He gave them a love feast. Quite incredible. And then he sent them home. He treated his enemies as guests. Talk about a different kind of vision. And as a result, our reading says, so the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. He brought about peace. Elijah's way of going about things reflected God's character. Loving our enemies, of peace, respect for the other, the stranger, of forgiveness, of loving sacrifice. It's powerfully illustrated in a film that I remember watching on the way over on that 13-hour flight from Qatar to Wyoming. I watched a lot of, uh, of uh, films on that flight. It was titled The Kingdom of Heaven, the story of a man named Balian, some of you have seen the film, who ends up being a senior military officer during the Crusades in the Holy Land, in Palestine, having to defend Jerusalem. All those around him, such as the Knights Templar, insist that God wants the Christians to slaughter the Arabs, but not Balian. He refuses to comply, and he treats the Arabs with love and respect and dignity. And there's this eloquent uh, short little scene there where Balian, standing with his friend, they're watching the executions of knights who had killed Arabs. And he remarks, they're dying for doing what their pope would tell them to do. And his friend replies, yes, but not Christ, I think. And so our reading, if you go so far as to say that Elisha demonstrated the way of Christ, which, of course, is reflected most clearly for us in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Focusing in on reality and still using photographic language, Elisha turned the negatives into positives. Spiritual vision can never really exist from a predominantly negative position. I'm reminded of the two prisoners in a small cell, looking out that same little window. One sees bars, one sees stars. One sees bars, those metallic reminders of reality, and one sees stars, a future envisioned as God meant us and our world to be. And vision, in this sense, involves faith, because faith and vision are really two sides same coin. And it means God using loaves and fish if that's all that's in the sack. I love the way the artist Raphael has given us a whole new vision of God, of course, in his paintings. I love how he expresses himself. 
He said, I simply dream dreams and see visions. Then I paint around those dreams and visions. And turning the negatives into positives means action. People of vision are like Elisha, are people of action. Dream and reality, passion and practicalities go together. Without the dream, the vision loses its direction and fires. But without action, the vision fades into the air. And that involves people. Elisha prayed that his assistant might share the vision of those invisible forces, real forces. In other words, that his assistant might see God in a new way. I am who I am because of people spiritually investing in me, who imparted their lives and their vision to me. Spiritual vision, it always focuses on how we can change the lives of people. Organizational development is useful. Buildings serve a purpose. Ministry programs are a means to an end. But the end is always related to changing the lives of people. And the challenge for us as followers of Christ here in Wyoming to be people who see the current landscape and who dream dreams of an alternative that's actually more honoring to God and determined to do something about it. And for this, we need continually a renewed vision of God's purpose for us in our world, which only and quite simply emerges from and is inspired by studying the life and the teachings of Christ. That simple. And certainly as a church, we need to continually ask or continually seek to have a vision of what God is leading us to do in our communities and our diocese. Those first disciples described themselves as those who saw visions and dreamed dreams. I thought I would close with the introduction to one of the late Anglican theologian Michael Green's books on the early church. It's a small group who Jesus commissioned to carry out his work to the whole world. They were not distinguished, they were not well-educated, they had no influential backers. In their own nation, they were nobodies. And in their case, their own nation was a mere second-class province on the eastern extremity of the Roman map. If they had stopped to weigh up the probabilities of succeeding in their mission, even granted their 